Did you know that you can be a critically thinking, rational person and be a Christian? Did you know that there's good evidence that Christianity is true? Did you know that the Christian faith can withstand the toughest of scrutiny? Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we believe because of the brains God gave us and not in spite of them. I'm your host, Evan Minton. Welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast, where we use the brains that God gave us. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Brother Bird about his newest book, Holy Smoke, The Myth of Eternal Torment. Um, In this book, he advocates for the annihilationist or conditional immortality view of hell. And uh, as you know, I've been a conditionalist myself for uh, not too long, only since about um, fall of 2019. Um, and Brother Bird is a very, um, very outspoken and very, um, persistent critic of eternal conscious torment, and he pushes what I think and what he thinks is the biblical view of hell, uh, which is that the damned cease to exist, uh, God punishes them not with conscious torture forever and ever, but with death, eternal death, death of body and soul, never ever to live again. Um, and if you're familiar with Rethinking Hell, that's the view of, of, of final punishment that they promote there. And we're just going to be doing a little bit of an overview of some of the uh, some of the content of his book today, and hopefully that will whet your appetite. You can go on Amazon and buy it and you know, go, uh, go deeper. So, Brother Bird, welcome to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. It's good to have you on. Well, thank you, Evan, so much. I really appreciate it. And if they do look it up, uh, I'll tell them that it's spelled W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy smoke, uh, so they can find it. Yes, it's a, it's, a, it's a play on words. It's W-H-O-L-L-Y. So it's, it's not, it's, uh, yeah, it's a pun. It's a pun. Yes. So, uh, Brother Bird, tell us, uh, tell the audience a little bit about yourself. Well, uh, hmm. I am incognito. Uh, Brother Bird is a nickname. Uh, when I was transitioning to this point of view, uh, in my circle, I, I knew of no one that held to conditional immortality. I, I didn't know the term conditional immortality. And as I ex- explained in the book, there were these two sisters. Uh, they, they visited our little church. We were out in the country. And they handed me a leaflet that uh, cited both the passage in Jude and in Peter that spoke of the destruction of Sodom as being an example of the future punishment. And I, I really didn't pay much attention to it then. But when I, when I saw those two verses... It really struck me that that could be a possibility because uh, Jude said that they suffered the vengeance of eternal fire. And Peter said that that turned them to ashes. And so um, as I began to investigate and and I'm explaining why I'm incognito is um, it, it was very controversial and people began to hear of, of what I guess they would have viewed as my apostasy or drift away from um, the Orthodox faith. 
and uh, and that really surprised me because I, I I didn't know I didn't know that it was it was such a core uh, belief to where I would just be written off, and so it was very discouraging. And uh, so I, I started writing these poems. I, I had written a shorter book years ago, and and had a hard time getting anybody to read it. So so I thought. What if I put it in poem form? And so I love to, to write poems. So I wrote this series of, of six poems. They can be found on Scribd. Uh, and it's called The Brother Bird Saga. And they're, each poem is quite long. And so some of the people that knew me uh, and knew the story started calling me Brother Bird from the character in the poems. And so I kind of laid it down, got really discouraged with it uh, because of the circle I was in. And uh, then years later, when I went back to, to look at it more uh, with a, a greater focus and began writing the book, uh, in my circle, there were a lot of people who knew me and said, you know, you, you might should just stay as Brother Bird, and at least for now. So anyway, sorry, that's a kind of a long answer not to give you an answer. <laughs> yeah, well, I, I can understand that. Um, I remember listening to some of the podcasts on Rethinking Hell, uh, and there was this scholar who says that he thinks that there are biblical scholars um, who work at universities, and they, they're forced to sign statements of faith, and, and maybe they're you know in the closet, so to speak, but they won't come out and endorse um, conditional immortality, even though they believe it, uh, because of, of what will happen to them, and you know, some people get fired from their jobs. There was this person who worked for Answers in Genesis. I mean, and I mean, he he was a young Earth creationist, just like the people at Answers in Genesis are. And uh, um, he, you know, he he agreed with their uh, statement of faith and inerrancy. And it it was only over that his adopting annihilationism or conditional immortality that. Um, the people at Answer in Genesis said, we, we got to let you go. So there's a lot to lose. I, I'm i fortunate that I, I'm not, uh, I'm, you know, kind of autonomous. I don't uh, work for an organization or a university or, um, uh, or any big major ministry where I could, lo I could lose my livelihood. So I, I'm, I'm really, I have a lot of freedom to look at the evidence and follow it where it leads. And, and, you know, the worst that can happen to me is that I get some backlash on social media. But I, t I totally understand you uh, wanting to lay low. Yeah, and, and in doing so, it, it, one thing I've, I've noticed, or I think I have, <clears throat> is that kind of the mystique of Brother Bird in, in some settings has actually enhanced the interest. And so it's, at one point, I thought, you know, maybe I should just stay Brother Bird because uh, a lot of these people, you know, they know a Brother Bird. They, they actually wouldn't know me or, or it would confuse them if they did know me. Um, so, so it's been kind of fun. It's, kind of, it's been fun to be uh, Bro Bird. Uh, when I got my Facebook page, they didn't allow Brother Bird. And so I, I did the Bro Bird. And so a number of people who knew the story, you know, right away, they were private messaging me and saying, hey, is this so-and-so <laughs> or, or I know who you are. So that was kind of fun. But then other people didn't and they would try to guess. So I guess I, I've tried to capitalize 
on a little bit of the of the mystery. And then some people would say, is that all you ever talk about? Well, uh, Evan, the truth is I, I have a life beyond conditional immortality. But as as Bro Bird, uh, as you know, that, that is definitely my, my focus. Yeah, yeah, that's the the focus of of your ministry, like like rethinking hell. That's what they that's what they do. They they also promote conditional immortality, and that's that's their uh, angle. So what what got you interested in studying the doctrine of hell? I know you mentioned that um that that uh, card that those old ladies gave you with second peter 2 6 and jude 7 uh, was that what prompted you to start was that um was that the thing that kind of went off in your head and say oh wait a minute let, let me let me dive into the bible and see what it really teaches about hell let, let me uh <laughs> rethink this well I, I can i can trace it back at least my mindset before that um that leaflet. Now, that leaflet would have been the beginning of, of what I would call a Berean search. Uh, you know, that, that leaflet made me really want to search the scriptures. But before, I'd had some reservations when I was a young pastor, just in my uh, middle to late 20s. Um, I had brought a sermon on, on hell, and it was from the angle of of maybe some things that we were mistaken of on hell. Now, I still held to ECT at that point, but I remember some of the things was was like that the devil is, is not in hell, and some preachers in our circle would make statements like, tell the devil to go back to hell where he belongs. And so I just showed in Scripture that, well, he, he's not in hell. And then uh, some of the tracks that we had, like the chick tracks, they would show someone casting uh, people into hell. It would be like a cartoon in a in a comic book track, and so I was saying that there's, there's no indication of that. There's no indication that that demons or the tormentors uh, that it actually speaks of demons being tormented. Um, so so that was that was a long time before I made the the change. So I guess looking back on that, I was I was very sensitive that you know maybe we didn't have it exactly right on hell. And I had come up in a family that was not very many Christians in my family. And so I was very burdened. I took it very serious. And I was, I was very evangelistic, extremely evangelistic. And so I think it bothered me that in my circle that we could be so flippant about hell, you know, believing that it was eternal. Uh, and and you, you brought that out beautifully in your book, I thought. I, I felt like that was you know, some motivation on your part. Uh, so, so that was kind of early on. And, but once I started after that leaflet, then it, it was, it was just a full-time focus. I wanted to know. And at that time, I didn't know about Edward Fudge, the fire that consumes. I didn't know about Edward White, life in Christ or Henry Constable or John Pettingle or Clark Pinnock. I, I didn't know of any of these guys. I didn't, I didn't know of any doctrine, and some people would say, oh, are you believing like the Jehovah's Witnesses or Seventh-day Adventists? I didn't even know what they believed. So it was, it was very, a very isolated search. Yeah, yeah, for, yeah, and for me, for my, um, when I, when I switched, I, um, uh, annihilationism or conditional immortality, um, it was starting to get, starting to gain traction i've noticed i noticed uh, more and more people 
recently over the past couple of years, uh, clinging, uh, clinging to it and advocating it. And so I actually was forced to confront it more than I, than I normally would have. And some of my Facebook friends had become conditionalists. And when I tried to prove eternal torment from them, I realized I, I couldn't do it. Um, there, there's only, there's only a couple that are, that seem to, and, and hopefully we'll get into this later, the, those verses from Revelation, but everywhere else, you could at most make a case for consciousness for a, a finite period, but you, uh, you know, I, I had, to, I had to deal honestly with the text. And after mm -hmm. that, after that, I, I, I looked and I was like, where, where's the, where's the evidence for eternal torment? I found language of destruction and death and and fire that consumes. Um, and the most I could come up with are, you know, those descriptions of weeping and gnashing of teeth, which doesn't give a <laughs> doesn't give an amount of time for how long the weeping and gnashing of teeth will go. And that's when I thought, you know what, I I I, I think this may have a uh, a better case for it than I initially thought, and, and boy, was I blown away. Uh, a friend of mine <coughs> recommended uh, Edward Fudge's book, and I read it, and I expected it to... I've, I've changed my mind on some other things, uh, on some other theological issues, but and, and it, but it took a while. I, I read um, theology books by advocates of you know both views or three views, and, and it took me a while. Not with this. With this, my confidence in eternal torment was just annihilated pun intended <laughs> immediately after i put it down i'm like this is the biblical view and i i think that people will have that experience when they read your book well thank you thank you that's, that's definitely the goal is I, I wanted it to be a persuasive case and it to be squarely on on scripture yeah so you begin your book in chapter one titled, What About John 3.16? Um, John 3.16, well the most well-known Bible verse in the world, uh, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only Son, that whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have eternal life. Could you unpack some of what you said in that chapter for our audience? Sure. Uh, that, that was, John 3.16, kind of seeing perish for what it was, and, and in, in contrast to everlasting life, was an epiphany for me. Uh, I was actually talking to another uh, Christian brother who believed uh, eternal conscious torment, and at that point, I had really began to be skeptical, so I was kind of playing devil's advocate. I wasn't fully convinced of conditionalism, but we were talking back and forth, and he was bringing up Revelation 20, Revelation 14. And at that, I think at that point, it was just pretty um, basic for me. I, I, I would say then I had reason that Matthew 3 said he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. So I was kind of at this point like, okay, so he's going to burn up the chaff. So it's the, the fire that's unquenchable, not the chaff, kind of like it's the fire that was eternal, not Sodom. Uh, so it was, it was just really... Uh, primitive, my understanding at that point. And like I say, I didn't know anything about Fudge or any of these other guys. And so as I'm talking to him, um, all of a sudden, John 3.16 just, just hit me. And and I was like, whoa, wait a minute. And he was like, what, what? 
And I, I said, John 3.16. He's like, what? And I said, shall not perish. And it just, it just overwhelmed me. And so I remember going and looking for my Strong's Concordance. And so I grabbed my Strong's and I sit on the couch, put the Strong's in my lap, I looked up Parish, and I just spent the rest of whatever time it took to look at all 154 times that Scripture used some form of the word Parish. So, so that was it. And as I bring out in the first chapter that we all know John 3.16, but maybe we, we know it so well but understand it so little. And it's been amazing to me how many Christians who are now conditionalists, they say, I, I knew that verse. I had it memorized. We quoted it. We said it all the time, but I, I never noticed perish. Yeah. And so that I, I try to bring that out in chapter one that, hey, we're going to go into everything else. But I just wanted to plant that seed. And that's been effective with a number of people where. I just, you know, they say, well, I heard you quit. You don't believe in hell anymore. And I said, well, no, I, I believe in it. I just don't believe it's endless. Well, what exactly do you believe? And I said, well, to start with, I believe John three sixteen, that believers receive everlasting life and unbelievers don't. They perish. And that's kind of a recurring theme in Holy Smoke, the myth of endless torment, is, is that's conditionalism. Is believers receive it. Unbelievers don't. Therefore, they perish. Yeah. Yeah. And, um. I had that same I had that same experience. I was like, how how could I miss this? And how could I miss all the other all the other places in scripture where the destruction of the wicked is brought up? I mean, when you think when you think about it, I mean, this is this is what it was a real eye-opener for me. And I, I it really showed me the power of filters of presuppositions. When you think about it, it's just it's just straightforward logical. Like yes. for God so loved the world he gave his only whosoever believes in him will not perish, but have everlasting life. That implies that those who don't believe will not have everlasting life, but will perish. And what what does it mean to perish? Well, it can't just mean physical death, because everyone experiences that at you know, at least once. Um, so it has to mean something more than just you're going to die someday because otherwise, you know, all of the apostles perished and didn't, ha and didn't get eternal life. Um, and right. then, and then, you know, you think, well, Revelation talks about this thing called the second death and Matthew ten twenty eight talks about there being a death of body and soul in hell. So maybe that's what it means to perish. It's more, it's more than just. It's it's more than just a regular, you know, the death that both believer and unbeliever will experience. This is a this is a type of death. This is a type of perishing that only unbelievers will experience. Yes, and and that's and that did it for me. And then everything else just made sense because I think right after that I'm like, oh, yeah, the lake of fire and being cast into it is the second death, and and then then just. Scriptures just came to mind. Romans six twenty three, for the for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. First uh, John five eleven and twelve. Uh, this is the record that God has given to us eternal life, and this life is in His Son. He that hath the Son hath life. He that hath not the Son of God hath not life. And then I thought about 
John 10, 28, uh, my sheep hear my voice and I, I give unto them eternal, or they, they follow me and I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. And it, like I say, it, it was an epiphany. And though I had other things that got me searching, the John three sixteen revelation, it, it was over after that. Okay. So what are the top 10 most persuasive texts for annihilationism in your opinion? Well, uh, other than John three sixteen, I, th- I think uh, Matthew three, Matthew three twelve, he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Uh, Malachi four, the day that cometh uh, shall burn as an oven, and all that uh, all the wicked and all that do proudly uh, shall be as stubble, and the day that cometh shall burn them up. Um, I would say also Revelation that twice we're told that the lake of fire being cast into it. Is the second death? I think Second Thessalonians one, when when people understand that it's one sentence, there's no period from uh, verses uh, I think seven to ten, uh, that when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in flaming fire with his mighty angels, taking vengeance on them who know not God, who obey not the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ, who shall be punished with everlasting destruction from the presence of the Lord and glory of His uh, power. When he shall come, and it's one sentence, and of course, as you know, as when we would believe DCT, we thought that meant separated from the presence, and away from the presence, but that was a real eye-opener when I saw that, so I would I would put that in a top 10 for CI scriptures. Uh, Philippians, uh, where it says, um, enemies of the cross of Christ, whose end is destruction. Psalm 37, 20, the wicked shall perish, into smoke shall they consume away. And, and in the book, as you know, I do three chapters that I call the threefold chord. And the threefold chord is the plain words, the clear pictures, and the perfect example. And the plain words, as you've mentioned, uh, destruction, devour, consume, perish, death, die, no more. Uh, the clear pictures are that all of these combustible items like chaff, t- stubble, tares, thorns, briars, are placed in this powerful fire that can't be put out, which would obviously burn up these type of items. So they're clear pictures. And then God uses the perfect example of Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, you know, Jesus says, as, the, as fire fell from heaven and destroyed them all, even so shall it be. And both Jude and Peter call that the example of the future judgment. Nice. Yeah, I would I would put um, Matthew ten twenty eight, Second Peter two six, uh, yeah. seven, and John three sixteen uh, among my, you know in the top five of my top ten. Um, I, I, I I mean even even back when I had uh, those blinders on when I read Matthew ten twenty eight for the first time it just it just struck me. Fear not, do not fear him who can destroy the body. Instead, fear him who can destroy both body and soul in hell. Well, body and soul, that's the whole person. If you destroy the body and the soul, there's nothing left. That's all annihil- That's annihilation. And I thought, you know, very first time, brand new Christian, reading the Bible, I thought, that doesn't... But, but aren't people alive in hell and torment forever? They're not... They're not destroyed in both body and soul. And I didn't know what to. I didn't know what to make of it. And unfortunately, I didn't let the text grasp me. Um, I just kind of shrugged my shoulders and just kept reading on. 
But, and later when I was forced to confront it, the only thing I could really say is, well, it doesn't mean God will destroy the body and soul of hell, only that he's able to. And I like how Glenn Peoples uh, responded to this argument. And it's not just me. I've heard other traditionalists respond the same way. They said, well, that makes about as much sense as for Jesus to, to warn his disciples, uh, don't uh, fear him who has the ability to turn you into chickens. <laughs> if if God does not intend to do something ever, if that's not something you ever have to worry about, then for Jesus to tell us to fear him because of that, it, it's it it just makes the warning nonsensical. Great point. Great point. And I, I had a friend of mine. He I didn't know he was investigating this. He had heard of my my departure from ECT, and so he snuck up to me one day and he said. Um, he looked around to make sure nobody was hearing him. And he said, I was just reading in Matthew 10. And he said, I saw it destroy both soul and body in hell. <laughs> and so then he, you know, he got real kind of quiet and walked away. Uh, but that, yeah, that one is definitely deserving. And, and for me, a lot of my belief in eternal conscious torment had to do with the immortality of the soul. And I, I have a whole chapter in the book called um, A Living Soul. And I begin with the thought of the Jenga game, where you, you remove the wrong piece and the whole thing, the whole tower falls. And so I remember when I was, I was really early on in this, Evan, and, and so I started asking uh, people that I thought were orthodox. And I kind of hated to Im admit this, but I didn't know where the immortality of soul was in Scripture. And I went to a four-year Bible college, had a Bachelor of Arts degree, and I'd been in ministry for a number of years and so I just, I just humbled myself and I said, hey, I, I don't know where I would prove immortality of the soul. And so I thought that it was going to be simple. They're going to say, oh, yeah, well, you know, right here. And nobody else could tell me. They were grasping at straws. They'd say, well, uh, God breathed into man's nostrils, breath of life, and he became a living soul. And I'd say, but, but does that say an immortal soul? And I had kind of been taught that the soul was some kind of ethereal occupant, kind of like a ghost. And, and so I noticed that, well, he became a living soul. And so I started really searching soul. And then somebody told me about Lorraine Boatner. I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing his last name right. But he supposedly wrote the classic on immortality. And pretty deep into the book, I forget how many pages, he says, well, the scripture doesn't really explicitly state the immortality of the soul. It's just kind of, um, it's kind of implied uh, type thing. And so this really blew me away because I thought immortality of the soul, I thought that's just, you know, that's undeniable. Uh, but anyway, going along with what you were saying about Matthew 10, 28, I, I think for a lot of those who go from ECT to CI, I think understanding that the soul is not, a more, not, is not immortal uh, has a lot to do with their understanding. Yeah. What do you think, wh where did that, uh, what do you think that idea um, originated? Like, where did it? Where did it come from? I I'm pretty I'm pretty sure Saint Augustine is is um like responsible for making it so widespread, but um I don't think it was original with him. Well, and I guess in reading some of the other ones, you know, a lot of people talk about it being a Platonic idea uh, coming from Plato, and then some will point out, well, he saw immortality uh, both ways that uh, we always did exist. And the soul was placed in man. 
And and I've tended, I guess in my search, I, I felt like there were so many good books out there that dealt with a lot of the history of this. There's Leroy Froome's Conditionalist Faith of Our Fathers, and of course, uh, What Fudge Brings Out, and uh, John Pettingle, and some of those from years ago. So I, I really kind of avoided that. So I'm, I'm not very knowledgeable on that early history, and if I stated it, I would just be trying to remember what I read from those guys. Yeah, yeah. We, uh, I'm not. Uh, I'm not extremely huge on. Uh, or, it, I, I know like the first. I know like the first couple of generations after the apostles, but after the after that, it's kind of fuzzy. Um, I, I, after that, it's all fuzzy until the Reformation. Yeah, and it seems like when I read the early church fathers, uh, sometimes claims from both sides. I'm not. I'm not that convinced and, and sometimes I think maybe they just use scriptural language and so let's say if, if they use the term everlasting destruction well if if you believe ECT and you think that means everlastingly being destroyed or destroying then you think well see look there's an early church father and he was ECT but if you understand it as, as we do that it's a destruction that's that lasts that it's not the destroying it's not on and on but the destruction lasts forever, then we can look at that early church father and say, see, see, he's a conditionalist. And, and so, so I guess that hasn't been that impressive to me, um, but, but I don't mean to discount it, but I think for me in, in the circle I'm in, it was going to have to be the thus saith the Lord, you know, the Berean search. What does the Bible say? Yeah. Yeah. I remember um, Joseph Deere talking about uh, that um, in a Facebook thread. He said that a lot of people claim some of the same guys for their camp, uh, but when they're actually just, they're actually just using the same terminology that the Bible does and they don't really, you know, most of them don't depart from that. So you can't really, unless, Unless you're interpreting the biblical phrases a certain way, you can't say that those church fathers uh, were were meaning it that way. Um, but there are a few who depart from the biblical language, and there you do uh, you do have you can say, yeah, this guy's a this guy's an internal torment guy, or this guy's a a conditionalist. But and um, Chris Day has uh, he has a video he he has a video series on rethinking hell live where he goes into some of these. Um, church church fathers like uh, I think Irenaeus and Tertullian are a couple of them, but like you said, they they're very few and far between. Like eight, eight out of ten times, they're just they're just using biblical terminology. Yes. So in, I, I agree. In chapter five, you you talk about the problem of assumed errors. I thought this was a very well needed chapter. Uh, I likewise have have talked about this in my own book on hell, Yahweh's Inferno: Why Scripture's Teaching on Hell Doesn't Impugn the Goodness of God. Uh, as yes. you, as you say in that chapter, a, a lot of things Christians believe weren't arrived at through careful exegesis or rigorous Bible study, but were simply presumed and then read in into the text. Uh, we 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 are told the Bible says blah 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 blah, and then we go to the text expecting to find X, and we find exactly what we're told to find. Uh, any passages of Scripture that don't line up with what our preacher or church told us the Bible says, we either label we either label them problem passages 
or we shrug our shoulders just not knowing what to do with them, like I did with Matthew 10, 28, 10 years ago. Um, uh, and I, I've had many, many filters of tradition removed from my eyes on uh, so many different topics. Uh, Genesis 1 to 3, eschatology, the Divine Council and Deuteronomy 32 worldviews in the Old Testament, um, and of course, the doctrine of hell. My reaction uh, regarding um, some of these, especially the topic we're talking about today, is, is how in the world could I have missed this? Because in the case of hell, uh, the Bible is just so clearly and unambiguous. The, the Bible so clearly and unambiguously contradicts what I was taught that I, I'm just left baffled at, at how I could read the Bible cover to cover multiple times and missed it. Uh, presuppositions are a powerful, powerful thing. Uh, I'd like you to tell our audience about uh, what one preacher said uh, Genesis 2-7 taught and the handful of Bible passages that contradict what he said. Could you do that for our audience? Yeah. Yes, and he, he's a you know wonderful brother in the Lord, but he just said point blank, he was bringing a message on four things I see in John 3.16. And he said, the Bible says that in Genesis 2.7, that the soul is immortal and cannot die. Well, of course, we know it doesn't say that. It just simply says that God breathed into man's nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living soul. And so when I couldn't get a good answer to immortality, talking about the handful of passages, I, I started remembering all these times that uh, David would say, thou hast delivered my soul from death. And so I wasn't, uh, I didn't have a strong view, a dogmatic view on what the soul was. And um, some of that is still, you know, I, I, I love to read some of the physicalist versus the dualist arguments uh, but I, I, what I did want to know is how does Scripture use that word? And so if we come up with this immortality of the soul, and yet I would see things like James 5.20, let him know that he which converteth the sinner from the air of his way shall save a soul from death. And then I was familiar with Ezekiel, the soul that sinneth, it shall die. And then as you mentioned, Matthew 10.28, uh, able to destroy soul and body. So, yeah, so that, there was a case where the absorption, the, the assumed uh, creedal point was that, well, the soul is immortal. And this brother could say this about Genesis 2-7. And I would think surely if I would have had the chance to talk to him that he would have to admit, yeah, you're right, it doesn't say that. Uh, and, and I try to bring out in the book, this, I use this line a lot. We knew what it meant before we read what it said. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we knew what it meant before we read what it said. Yeah, that... that. Um, on page 42, uh, you rhetorically ask the question, how could everyone have been so wrong for so long? And then you go on to answer it. What What is the answer, do you think? Why has this, uh, what I would consider biblically indefensible doctrine been the majority view over centuries. I think it's, I, and I do think it is biblically indefensible. I, I have said, without being hyperbolic, that it's probably the most indefensible doctrine that isn't a heresy that I've, uh, that's ever been espoused. Um, 
why do you think that this that it's so uh, so prevalent and that there isn't at least like a 50-50 split uh, on this issue like 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 with other issues like the arminianism calvinism debate right well in that chapter and as i was writing this i really wanted to answer that question uh, for everybody but but i knew i couldn't so as, as you know, I decided, well, I'm going to tell you how I think I was so wrong. And when I do that, I realized that I absorbed it. And so I, I say the answer is absorption. And I contrast that to embracing. Some things we absorb, then we assume, and then as you mentioned, we read it into the text. And then other things, we, we do the rigorous Berean search to see whether those things are so. And then we embrace um, so I looked back on it and I thought, wow, you know, everything was so visual uh, in my setting. So preachers would preach Luke 16, the rich man and Lazarus. They would preach Revelation. And I grew up in a, a setting that was really big on uh, the coming Antichrist, the mark of the beast, the tribulation, uh, the rapture of the church. And so all these things were very visual. And you, you may be too young to remember, but back in the 70s, there was all these uh, movies that came out and churches were showing them. And a lot of the songs from Jesus is coming soon to I wish we'd all been ready. And so I, I kind of think that part of that, that um, power of absorption and assuming these things has to do with how visual we made this, whether it was a chick track, um, whether it was a sermon on the rich man and Lazarus, so that, that just, it was in our Christian psyche. It's just like in, in our warp and woof. And so that would, that would be my answer for me, is I just completely absorbed it, never was challenged about it, didn't even think it was questionable. Whereas like Calvinism versus Armenianism, there did seem, like you said, more of a split. But this was like, well, we don't, we don't question that. Yeah. Yeah, and also I think it's not, it's not just, you know, preachers and... Uh... And, you know, behind the pulpit, but also, and also not just Christian culture, but, you know, even the secular Hollywood um, yes. ha has a role to play. Because whenever, whenever hell, you know, like I remember when I was a kid watching Tom and Jerry and uh, Tom at one point died and he went to hell and hell was this, you know, he was in a cauldron uh, and the devil was keeping him in there. You know, it's just, it's, it's everywhere. Yeah. It, it's the visual imagery that's just, you know, everywhere you go. And so that just becomes a synonym for hell. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you're right. Even the lost world, you know, if they say go to hell uh, or they say uh, I'm going to I'll see you in hell. Uh, I was just watching some old 70s t TV show and it was like, I'll see you in hell. And so, yeah, even even those who didn't claim to be believers had this concept of, of this kind of hell. And as I bring out in the book, I think it was a Gallup survey at one point, like 74% of Americans believed in hell, and it was more of that kind of hell. But, of course, only 1% thought they were in danger of going there. Yeah, so talk about how the various uh, word pictures in Scripture paint an unmistakable picture of annihilation as you as you do in chapter 10. Uh, I like the phrase you use, the, the pictures in the scriptures. 
Yes, yes. And I, I use that chapter to contrast uh, Aegis Fernando's uh, book, which was Crucial Questions About Hell. And he would keep talking about the imagery, the imagery of fire. And, and I realized that that was the difference. Uh, ECT sees this imagery of fire. CI sees this imagery of objects in fire. And, and so in the chapter, I talk about uh, Clara Peller. She was the one that uh, asked, where's the beef in the Wendy's commercials? And so as I was reading Aegis Fernando, I'm like, where's the chaff? You know, where's the tares? Where's the stubble? And so it, it, it hit me that, wow, there is such a consistency of these pictures and that figures of speech would be true to the figure. They wouldn't make sense if they weren't true to the figure. And so I did this catalog in that chapter of all the figures of speech. And sometimes, and I, and I try to bring this out, but you, you pointed it out, I think, in your review of the book. And I thought it was a valid observation that sometimes I bring in language from temporal judgments that aren't necessarily uh, portending the future judgment. Uh, but what I see is this consistency of whether it was a temporal judgment, past judgment, or the future judgment, that is the same language within these same pictures. And that picture would simply be of a very combustible item in a very powerful fire. And if the, if the inspired authors didn't give us any commentary, I would think those pictures should be enough. You know, what's going to happen to tares that are gathered and burned? Well, any Galilean farmer would know. He would say, oh, that's going to burn up. And anybody that's cleared brush uh, that's been cast into the fire, they know it's going to burn up. But we're not left to interpret it. Uh, we are given commentary from the inspired authors, and they use such terms as devour, consume, burn up, etc. So, so, yeah, I think to me, if, if someone reads the book— that chapter you just referred to, I, I personally feel that it's that it's unanswerable. Yeah. Now, how do, how would you res, how would you respond to Mark nine forty three and forty eight, which is often used as a proof text for eternal torment? Because uh, in these two verses, Jesus is talking about um, uh, the unquenchable fire, uh, the and uh, the people, the, their worm does not die, the fire is not quenched. They they use they argue that and say, see, the fire is unquenchable. It'll, that means it'll never go out, and the, the worm will not die. Sure. Well, the first first thing that uh, when I was doing the Berean search, and I didn't know this. I'd been a preacher for a number of years, and I didn't realize that Jesus was quoting the Old Testament. He was quoting the very last verse of Isaiah, Isaiah 66, 24. And that phrase that, that occurs three times in the King James uh, in Mark 9, where their worm dieth not and the fire is not quenched, would be from verse 24 of Isaiah 66. And there, being a pronoun, has an antecedent, what it refers back to. And what it refers back to is the carcasses of those that transgressed against the Lord. And so I, I, I read that passage and I thought, okay, the, the Jews, they were certainly familiar with Isaiah. When Jesus began his ministry, he picked the scroll of Isaiah and, and read it about the, the spirit that anointed him to preach the gospel to the poor. And then he would say sometimes to the Pharisees, well, does Isaiah uh, say of you? 
Um, and then we know the Ethiopian eunuch in the chariot. He was reading from Isaiah 53. So Isaiah uh, was very familiar to uh, his Jewish audience. In fact, in the New Testament, it's the most quoted book of, of them all except Psalms. Uh, it's a close second to Psalms, but of course, Psalms has 150 uh, Psalms. But anyway, so I was like, wow. So Jesus was quoting something that they would be familiar with. And when you read that context in Isaiah 66, you see that it's a battle scene. And this is a battleground, kind of like those old grisly uh, photos from Gettysburg. And the dead bodies, the corpses laying there. And it speaks of the sinners being consumed together, that the Lord will come in a fury of fire, and the slain of the Lord shall be many. So that's just not the language of eternal torment. But then even in Mark 9 itself, I think the contrast is very clear. He says three different times, it would be better to enter life. Uh, so he says it'd be better you pluck out an eye and enter life. Or you cut off a hand or you uh, cut off a foot and enter life. And he said, because it would be better that one of your members perish. And there's that word again that one of your members perish than to be cast into hell. And in the companion of that is Matthew 10, 28, where God is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And that would be, uh, um, if you compare each gospel rendering, uh, so cast into hell would be equal to where God is able to destroy both soul and body. So, so I think even in the context, it's not a contrast between uh, bliss or torment. It's a contrast between life or perish, and it would be better that, that your eye or your hand or your foot perish than your whole being perish in hell. Yeah, it kind of it kind of reminds me of like what doctors do, like when a person has gangrene or when they have a, um, a you know, just a really badly injured arm or leg, and if they don't remove it, the person's going to die. So they cut it off. They amputate the person because it's better to lose one of your members than to die. And that's what's going to happen to the damned in hell. They're going to completely cease to exist. And so Jesus is saying, it's better for you to only have one eye in heaven or one arm in heaven than for your entire being to just um, burn up. Yes, excellent. That's, that's so well put. So, what about what about the language of unquenchable fire? Uh, that what what does what does unquenchable fire mean? Well, it, it can't be put out, and uh, I like to use Old McDonald's farm. Or his barn, I'll say, okay, so, and, and, and in the book, I actually tell a true story about my neighbor's house that burned. But I'll say, okay, if the old McDonald's barn caught fire, if, if I told you they could not put it out, would that be language that would make you think it, it burned up or that it would burn on and on and on? Of course, everybody says, well, of course, I, I know it burned up. So I think Jesus was using language in the strongest of terms. So he's going to put this, this wheat waste, this dry thing called chaff, and he's going to put it in a fire that cannot be put out. So, so I think what he does, they try to, they, they think of people as the fuel. So, so they think, okay, if it's unquenchable fire, that means uh, it's, it's continually burning 
And, and I ask them, well, what's the fuel? And some of them haven't thought about that, but some say, well, the people. I say, well, is anything about them burning up? If anything's burning up, then eventually everything will burn up. Uh, so, I, so I think it's just a, a misuse of that term. I call it dogma derangement. When you have John the Baptist saying that he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire, but then to say, no, 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 John, uh, because the fire can't be put out, that means the chaff burns on and on. And so I, I just think there's something odd about the of that being even an argument for the other side. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, the word unquenchable, I mean, you even look up the English word in the dictionary. It just means something that cannot be quenched. And we, we use that term outside of the hell debate. We realize what it means. Uh, like someone said, I drank a whole bottle of water and my thirst is unquenchable. It doesn't mean that there's no amount of water that will quench, that will quench your thirst, that will put it out. Um, but when it comes to yeah, the hell debate, yeah. we, ju we just kind of forget the definition. Yeah, so when it burns up the chaff, it could go out. Um you know, a friend of mine, I'll bring out this story in the book. He says, well, well what about unquenchable fire? And I say, well, it's irrelevant. And he's like, oh, you know, that's not a good answer. I say it's irrelevant. I say, well, here's what I mean. Do we know what happens to what's in it? I said, John the Baptist says it burns up. So it's not unquenchable chaff. It's not indestructible chaff. So for whatever reason that the fire, and I think that's how he worded it, why is the fire unquenchable? I said, well, it really doesn't matter when you consider the result that John the Baptist tells us that this kind of fire will do. But I do bring out in the book why I believe it's unquenchable, because I believe it's the eternal fire of God. Uh, Jude verse 7, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. In Luke 17, Jesus said, uh, fire and brimstone rain from heaven and destroyed them all. Peter says, turning them to ashes. Lamentations, Jeremiah says, um, it happened as in a moment, and no hands stayed on her. So I think that this thought that because this word describes the fire, same way with everlasting fire, that those are adjectives modifying the fire, not chaff, not Sodom. And so not only should we know that it doesn't modify Sodom, Sodom's not eternal, that we should know that chaff is not indestructible, but then we're told he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Eternal fire turns Sodom to ashes. Yeah, and it's, uh, it's it, the argument is even stronger when you uh, look at the Greek word, uh, katakayo, and you realize how that, and you look in the Old Testament, and in Exodus 3, that word is used of the burning bush, it says the, the the bush was burning and it was not consumed. Well, when it comes to the the chaff, it says that will be consumed. Yes, so, yes. So you've got a, a big you've got a big contrast there. The 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 bush wasn't consumed. It was burning and it wasn't being destroyed. It wasn't being burned up. But the chaff it will be burned up. And the chaff is obviously representative of people. Yeah, and, and that uh, Greek word in Matthew 3, I do bring it out in a footnote. Uh, some people miss it because the online version puts all the footnotes at the end. 
but it's a compound word. And one of the, the one of the words in the compound word is is down, like burn down. And, and we, we do that when we speak of it burned to the ground. So in some ways we will say burn down, and then other ways we say, well, it burned up. And so most all of your your Greek tools are going to show that that is indeed a compound word and that it's not just burn, but it's burn up or burn down. Yeah, how do uh, how do you respond to traditionalists who argue that Matthew twenty five forty six proves eternal punishment? It it does uh, it does say the wicked are sent to everlasting punishment. So they argue, there you go, the punishment is everlasting. And I believe it is. I believe the punishment is everlasting. So what what I always ask, and, and I do in the book, what is the punishment? So again, the absorption, the assumption is that the punishment is torment. So when I have that conversation, I'll say, oh, yeah, I agree. I agree that the punishment's everlasting. You do? I thought you didn't believe in eternal conscious torment. Oh, I don't. Well, how can this be? And I said, well, what is the punishment? And so a lot of them hadn't thought about that before because they just so instantaneously assumed that punishment equaled pain, punishment equaled torment. So I'll ask them, fill in the blank, everlasting, and a lot of them go torment. And so then I show them, and I think there's like 18 verses that I bring out in the book. And and by the way, I'm putting them at the end of the chapter. I I liked your observation of the scripture dumping. And so I've already been going back through and I thought, okay, Evan brings up a good point. What I could do is I could summarize and then I could point them to the end of the chapter where there's a list if they want to, you know, see each and every one. And that way they won't get so bogged down as they're reading. But anyway, so my final point is it is everlasting. The punishment is destruction, not torment. Yeah, that good point. And also, uh, this was this was brought up to me by Chris Date during uh, my interview with him uh, on his program. He says that notice what everlasting punishment is contrasted with. It's contrasted with eternal life. the The, the wicked will go away to everlasting punishment. The righteous to eternal life. But if yes. if if they were a if if the everlasting punishment were conscious torture, everyone would have eternal life. It would just be a matter of real estate. Yes, yes, and you may remember I put a like a tower of a of a contrast back and forth. So John three sixteen perish or everlasting life. Uh, Matthew I believe it's seven uh, broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there's a way that leadeth to life. Daniel 12, some awake to everlasting life and others don't. They awake to everlasting contempt and, and shame. Uh, so, yeah, I think the, the contrast is powerful. And that was a point that John Pettingle often made, that when you put all these scriptures together, so there's about, I don't know, maybe 18 of those. And the contrast is life or something that's not life. You know, perish, destruction, perdition, death. And I think that's very powerful. So why would we see a tower like that of such a clear contrast and then go and think that Matthew 25 undoes that whole consistency? Right. So um, one more question. Uh, how how would you deal with Revelation 14, 10, and 11? Revelation 14, 10 to 11 says... 
They too will drink the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. They will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment will rise forever and ever. There will be no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and its image, or for anyone who receives the mark of its name. Yes, I would say, first of all, that there's there's nothing in that passage that indicates that this is speaking of the uh, resurrected dead or the, those raised from the dead. Uh, and there's nothing in the passage that would indicate that it's speaking of, of hell. In fact, this is in the presence of the Lamb and of the angels. So I, I believe it's very clearly a particular judgment on whoever those people are. Uh, I call them the mark receiving beast worshipers. So it's very specific that it's going to be a judgment on those mark receiving beast worshipers. But I point out the language doesn't say that the torment goes on and on. It says the smoke goes on and on. And we have three examples in scripture of ever rising smoke that clearly uh, described a complete destruction. The smoke rose on but the people were gone. And that's Sodom and Gomorrah. Abraham comes out the next day, and the smoke is like the smoke of a furnace, it says. And he's seeing this rise, just like 9-11 in New York City with the Twin Towers. So he sees this, but we know from Jesus that it destroyed them all. We know from Genesis, all the inhabitants is the wording. And we know from Peter, it turned them to ashes. So there's an example of this smoke that continued to rise, but it, it wasn't saying that they were still in torment. It was more of the memorial of what had happened. Just like at 9-11, the smoke rose for hundred, at least 100 days. But most people died you know, very quickly, either by the planes hitting the towers or they jumped uh, to their deaths or uh, when the towers collapsed. And the second example is Edomia in Isaiah. It says that uh, there was no more people. They were gone, but yet the smoke rose on. It, it actually also uses about the fire not being quenched, but the, the people are gone. You'll find no more people in the city. They'll never be there again. So that's Edomia, and then Babylon in the book of Revelation itself has the same language. It's the fire of, uh, of torment. It uses the word torment, and it says they will be utterly burned but then it says that that smoke would rise forever and ever, but Babylon would be gone. There would be no more merchants, no more music, no more, uh, and it gives a long list. It says Babylon and everything in it is gone. Yeah, what what passages are those? Um, the first one, uh, the one about Edomia is, I think, Isaiah. It's Isaiah chapter 30, but I, I don't know the verses. And uh, what's the second one? Yeah, Edomia would be, I think, 34, around 9 and 10. And then uh, Babylon would be Revelation 18 and 19. And then the first one, Sodom and Gomorrah, would be a, uh, a whole bunch of texts, you know, beginning with uh, uh, Genesis. Yeah. So, okay, before we cut it off, um, tell our uh, audience, um, the, those who uh, like paperback books, uh, is there going to be a print edition of this book? Yes, hopefully soon. Um, you you have got me working hard from your observations, and and I have to. I want to give you a plug for your book. You had already influenced uh, 
holy smoke, because um, uh, at Christmas we drew names and we would tell people what we wanted. And I said, I want Evan Minton's uh, book, Yahweh's Inferno. And uh, so I got it. And so what I really liked, I liked uh, you had a certain, I want to say conversational style. You know, I just feel like, feel like you were talking to me. And I really liked that. So when I did the last two edits, I do feel like you influenced me there. So I'm gonna I'm gonna give you credit or blame on on that. <laughs> if people if people like that style, then I say okay. So thank you, Evan, uh, for helping me on that. And now I'm reworking it all for the print edition because I do agree with some things you pointed out, and I want it to flow easier. So what I've been doing some of the times where I have a whole lot of references, I've moved them to a footnote, and then. Where I have a list, I've moved it to the back of the chapter. Nice. So that's taking some time. Nice, nice. And I'm I'm glad you I'm glad you liked the book. So thank you guys for listening to the Cerebral Faith podcast again. the The book is called Holy Smoke: The Myth of yeah, the Myth of Eternal Torment, and it's W H O L L Y. That's Holy Smoke. And, uh, of course, uh, I will leave a link in the show notes. So you, uh, wherever you're listening to this podcast, whether that, that is my alarm, uh, whether that be, uh, on Stitcher or iTunes or, um, or on just on the Cerebral Faith website, wherever you listen to it, you'll, uh, you'll see a link there and you'll be able to click it. But if you'd, uh, rather Google it for some reason, uh, that's the name of it. Um, it's currently available in Kindle, and it will soon be available in paperback. Uh, thank you for listening to the Cerebral Faith Podcast. I want to give a shout-out to my patrons, Zach Miller, Slam RN, Barely, uh, Barely Protestant, James Gadomsky, uh, Andrew Melnick, Michelle Minton, Christopher Rogers, Nathan Hamilton, Edwin Liu, Jordan Hampton, Brandon Whitaker, and David Parrish. And if you would like to support this ministry finan- uh, financially, go to patreon.com slash cerebralfaith. And uh, be on the lookout. If you haven't subscribed to the Cerebral Faith YouTube channel, go ahead and do so. I'm currently doing a uh, series that that I call Cerebral Faith Live, in which I do a series of presentations. Um, I use PowerPoint. Um, there's a live interactive chat. Um and I'm currently exegeting the entire primeval history, Genesis 1 to 11. And the next one is going to be on Monday. So go ahead and check that out. Peace out. God bless. And I will see you next time. And keep using the brains that God gave you.